0: Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Today's scripture reading comes from Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6. Now, the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel and Jeshua began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. The house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. You can, you can say it back. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good? Fine? Great. Um, if you haven't already, take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ezra Nehemiah. And, uh, which by the way, here at Ankeny gospel, we will be preaching through just books of the Bible in their entirety, which is a good thing because, um, that's a good thing. Uh, but it's, it sometimes can be confusing because if you just join, if you jump in the middle, like the, all the sermons build on each other because all the, the texts, they build on each other. And so sometimes that can be confusing, but do not fear, we actually have a podcast. So if you are, if you miss a week or you just came in the middle of a sermon series, you can go on the podcast, shameless plug, by the way, you can just go on the podcast and you can listen to our sermons there. They are put up every week around Monday or Tuesday after the sermon. And eventually we hope to have some of our equipping hour classes and some other things on there as well. But for now it's just a sermon. So if you're thinking, man, what happened last week in Ezra 4 or week before that in Ezra 3, you can go there, catch up, and um, we'll continue. So Today we are going to look at two things in Ezra chapter 5 and 6, two things. The first we're going to look at is the word of God. The second thing we're going to look at is the sovereignty of God. So we're going to look at the word of God and we're going to look at the sovereignty of God. And there should be a slide up there as well showing you what we're going to look at. The word of God and the sovereignty of God. Now, both of these things are in Ezra 5 and 6, Both of these things are in Ezra 5 and 6. It's like when you get like a Where's Waldo book, you open it up and you know what you're supposed to look for, right? I mean, I hope you, you're you're supposed to know that you're supposed to look for Waldo, right? What we're supposed to look for in Ezra chapter 5 and 6 is the word of God and the sovereignty of God. So as we go through this, keep these two things in the forefront of your mind. Now, just to recap, just to kind of define these two things, what is the word of God? What is the sovereignty of God? The first time we see the word of God is in Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens the earth. The earth was formless and void. Verse 3 says, then God said, let there be light. God spoke. It was God's word. That's almost the first character in the Bible, the first thing that God does in the Bible. So we know that the word of God does what? The word of God creates things. The word of God brings light out of darkness. The word of God brings order out of chaos, it brings, eventually it brings life, animals, birds, whatever, humans, it brings life out of a state of no life or death. That's what the word of God does. The word of God is effective, as in whatever the word of God says in the scriptures happens, right? Leanne and I are are dog sitting, my sister's dog, and I found out very quickly that my word is not always effective. So I'll say, Stella, sit. And she doesn't. And I found out very. if you're a parent, you probably feel that too sometimes with your kids. Hopefully not because all our kids are really good. Um, but you feel that sometimes where you, ha- you say a word and it, it is not effective. The dog does not sit. The kids do not obey. Whatever. That never happens with the word of God. Every time he says something, it happens. He blesses people. They're blessed. He curses the serpent in Genesis 3. It's cursed. He curses the ground in Genesis 3. It, it's It's cursed. Uh, the word of God convicts. The word of God brings to repentance. Think about the prophets in the Old Testament. One of the main jobs of the prophets was to call out Israel on their sin, on their religious idolatry. And sometimes it would work. Sometimes the people would recognize their sin because of the word of God through a prophet. They would recognize their sin and they would turn from their sin. David. Think of the story of David and Bathsheba. David um, has this terrible sin with Bathsheba and then her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And what is it that makes David repent? The word of God came through Nathan the prophet. This prophet, Nathan, brought the word of God to David, and David said, I have sinned greatly. That's what the word of God does. It brings light out of darkness. It brings life. It convicts. It's effective. That's the idea of the word of God, and you know, tracing that through the scriptures um, can, can help help Uh, emphasize that point as well next the sovereignty of God what is the sovereignty of God another word for sovereignty that I like is the power maybe the the uh, influence Um, God is kind of he he is orchestrating that's another word uh, that's used a lot is God orchestrates things you think of a conductor of an orchestra he's not playing every instrument but he's guiding it and he is um, involved in it In the same way, God works in and through humans for his glory and our good. Two examples of scripture, real quick, about the sovereignty of God. I think the best example in scripture of the sovereignty of God is also in Genesis, in the story of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph was the youngest of, at the time there were, what, 11? He was the youngest of 11 or 10 or something. And he was the favorite child. All his brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. He went down to Egypt. Then he got, like, um, basically put in charge of this really um, powerful guy, Potiphar, his house. Then he got framed for a crime and a uh, thing that he did not commit. Then he got put in prison again. And then years later, he interpreted dreams, and then he ends up being you know, put on the second in command. There's Pharaoh, and then there's, there's Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph says this, what man intended for evil, God turned to good. That is the summary of what the sovereignty of God is. What man intends for evil, God turns it to good. Paul says something similar. This is another example. Romans eight twenty eight. one of our favorite verses. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. All things work together for the good of those who love him And are called according to his purposes. That's the sovereignty of God. That no matter what situation we're in, no matter what decisions, wills, emotions, relationships we have, God always works it out. That's the sovereignty of God. So those two things, word of God, sovereignty of God, are present in Ezra chapter 5 and chapter 6. Before we look at Ezra chapter 5 and 6, though, let's review. Where are we at in Ezra? What in the world is going on in Ezra, and Nehemiah? And if you remember... Israel's lack of faithfulness led them into exile, right? God chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his family. They turned into the Israelites. God chose them to be a blessing for all the other nations. God chose Israel, not just because he liked them better than everybody else. He chose them actually to be a blessing for all the other nations. And he basically said, if you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. Uh, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And the story of Israel is that they hold up their end of the bargain like, you know, 1% of the time, like for like two seconds. It's like, oh, yeah, they did good. And it's like, but no, over and over and over again, we see Israel what? Falling, sinning, worshiping other gods, worshiping foreign gods, not holding up to the word of God and not trusting in the sovereignty of God. So God, in his sovereignty and by his word, actually brought in Babylon— After they were a nation, he brought in Babylon, and he wiped out Babylon. This big imperial nation came into Israel, the promised land that God promised to his people, and he wiped it out. He destroyed their cities. He destroyed their their homes. He destroyed their culture. Their families were separated. Their houses were destroyed. And worst of all, the temple was destroyed. The place where God Dwelt was destroyed. One scholar I was reading says that the destruction of the temple would be to America like 9-11 and Pearl Harbor in a single event. Can you imagine the national trauma and pain and hurt from those two events happening at the same time? Not only that, after Pearl Harbor and 9-11, Americans, they stayed, their home was still America, obviously the military went out and fought, but their home was still America. When Israel came in, when Babylon came in and wiped out Israel and destroyed their temple, Israel was no longer their home. They scattered them across the world. So now they're, not only did they not have a home, but now they're in a foreign country where they don't know the language, they don't know the culture. They're probably separated from their friends and their families. Half of them went over here, half of them went over here, and they're just everywhere. They have no identity, they have no culture, they have no nothing. And for decades, they're always asking, where is God? Where's God? He's not here anymore. The temple's destroyed. We're not home. What's happening? Then all of a sudden, you turn the page to Ezra chapter one, and what happens? The Lord brings up a new king, King Cyrus, and it says that the Lord stirred his spirit and he said, All right, there's these Israelites here. We're going to send them back. We're going to send them back home. Can you imagine the excitement? Like, wait, we're, we're going back home. Not only that, what Cyrus did is he actually supplied, he gave them supplies, he gave them money, he gave them resources, he gave them connections. And Ezra chapter two, there's a list of all the people who came back. And it's basically saying, they wanna take this seriously. They know they messed up the first time when they were in Israel. They're not gonna mess up again. Ezra chapter three, they get into the land, they put their suitcases in their homes, they all gather in Jerusalem, and the first thing they do is they have a worship service, right? They build an altar, not, not a temple, an altar is just like, the place where they would make sacrifices. The temple was the big building where the altar was in. They built an altar, they made a sacrifice, and they worshiped the Lord because they were like, Think, we're back, we're, this is it. This is the start of something new. And then, last week, we saw that all that momentum, all that excitement, all that potential came to a screeching halt in Ezra chapter 4. They're there, they're building, they're like, this is good, we're doing this. And all of a sudden, these enemies stop them in their tracks. And the temple building was stopped for 10 years. Can you imagine that? You're like, this is it. This is the work of the Lord. We're coming back. And then all of a sudden, you just are stopped for 10 years. Well, this is where Ezra 5 picks up. Let's look down at Ezra 5, verse 1. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. And actually go up one verse to Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. It says this, Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia, i.e. about ten years. Chapter 5, verse 1, But when the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedek, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. Okay, so the building of the temple had stopped for 10 years. Then after 10 years, the word of God comes to these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And it's in. if those, if those names sound familiar... Uh, that's because they have their they have their own book of the Bible. There's a book of Haggai. There's a book of Zechariah. If you go and read those books, the book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, their prophecies are about this event. They're contemporaries. They're at the same time. So their prophecies in Haggai and Zechariah, if you read them, which you should, they're really cool. One of them's really confusing, but one of them's pretty simple. Um, I'll let you figure that out on your own. Um, if you read Haggai and Zechariah, what they're saying is to these people, like, hey, start start rebuilding. Like, why, why have you stopped? Don't, don't fear the people, fear the Lord. And they start spurring them on, and they start imparting courage into them. And they start calling them out on their sin and on some of their laziness. They're painting a picture of what this new temple can look like. They're basically saying, hey, guys, did, we, did you forget who you were? We are the Lord's people. This is the Lord's house. Let's do this. So they spur them on, right? And they start rebuilding. Let's look back down at verse 3, see what happens. Verse 3. At that time, Tatani the governor, the region west of the Euphrates, Shethar Bozani, and their colleagues came to the Jews and asked, who gave you an order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? Verse 4. They also asked them, what are the names of the workers who are constructing this building? Okay, a little bit of a reminder. It's been 10 years since the building has stopped. Build, uh, under King Cyrus, they came in. There was another king in between there. And then Darius takes the throne. And so it's been a while since the building started and the building stopped. So this guy, Tottenai um, basically, he's new. He wasn't there when the Jews first came back. He wasn't there under uh, Cyrus at all. And so it, he's the governor. And he sees all of these groups of, like, probably thousands of people start to rebuild this massive structure in the middle of the city. So as a governor, he's like, hey, what's what's going on? Where are your pa- where's your paperwork, basically, is what he says. Like, who gave you this instruction? And so, yes, as you can see, uh, they're on the screen. So in chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, they resume the building through the uh, prophecy of Haggai and Zechariah. Then Tats and I them these two questions. Who gave you permission to do this? And what are your guys' names? Who's, who's doing this, basically? Let's look at verse 5. But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men, Tats and I and the other guy, wouldn't stop them until the report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instruction about this matter. And then we get into a long passage that's two letters. So we're basically reading somebody else's mail right now. So as you can see on the screen, we're not going to read through it, but as you can see on the screen, the next section is these two letters that happen. The first letter is from Tatanai to Darius. Okay, Basically, remember, Tatnai's there. He sees all these people. Constructing something. He writes to Darius and he says, Hey Darius, King Darius, sorry, so informal. Hey King Darius, uh, all of these Jews are in the land and they started rebuilding. They say that Cyrus years ago, like a decade ago, they say that Cyrus gave them permission. Is that true? That's the sum of the letter. Tatanai writes to Darius, Hey, they started rebuilding and they claim that Cyrus gave them permission is that true that's the first letter the second letter is Darius writing back to Tatanai. Tatnai and he responds to Tatnai yes it's true and don't get in the way let's look at what he says here so well let's think about this so Tatnai writes to Darius and he says is this true Darius then goes in the beginning of chapter 6 Darius then goes and he starts looking for this letter. He looks in these libraries and he opens up the filing cabinets. He's like, hey, did Cyrus tell the Jews they could go back home? He finds it and then he says, don't get in the way. Let's look at, uh, go down to chapter six, verse six. Chapter six, verse six. So Darius finds it and he says, yes, I found it. And then he says this in verse six. Therefore, you, Tatanai, You must stay away from that place. Verse 7, leave the construction of the house of God alone. Leave it alone. Let the governor and elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God uh, on its original site. Verse 8, I hereby issue a decree concerning what you are to do. This is what you should do, so that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. This is the decree. The cost of it is to be paid in full to these men out of the royal revenues, that's the king's personal bank, from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that the work will not stop. Okay, Darius writes this letter, he says, hey, I found it, also, don't get in the way. And more than that, I'm actually going to pay for it myself. Like, this foreign, pagan, not God-fearing person just said, hey, this is true, also, Back off. Also, let's pay for it so that they don't have to pay for it themselves. He doesn't stop there. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 6, verse 11. He keeps going. Darius keeps going. I also issue a decree concerning any man who interferes with this directive. Let a beam be torn from his house and raised up. He will be impaled on it, and his house will be made into a garbage dump because of this offense. Verse 12. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king, overthrow any people who dares to harm or interfere with this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued the decree. Let it be carried out. Wow. Don't get in the way. This pagan king, this king who does not know Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, just so happens to... One, even read the letter from Tatanai. He didn't have to. He finds the edict of Cyrus. He enacts the edict of Cyrus. He says, don't get in the way, Tatanai. He just so happens to decide to pay for it by himself from the royal revenue. He just so happens to say, and by the way, I'm going to make a threat that if anybody does get in the way, they're toast. And then he personally signs it himself. I, Darius, have issued the decree. Let it be so. There is nothing that can explain this other than the sovereignty of God. In God's sovereignty, he did not, God wasn't going to lead Israel into the promised land to to bring about a new temple and then lead them to a dead end. God God wasn't going to lead these Israelites to just all of a sudden stop for 10 years, but not make it 10 years, but make it 100 years. God, similarly, in God's sovereignty, God doesn't lead us into dead ends. God doesn't lead us into an area where we might, yes, there might be a time of 10 years of no building, but God's not gonna keep us there because what God promised, he is going to carry out. Promised by his word, he is going to carry out. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, okay. Let's keep reading. What's the result of this? This is the final section. This is the resolution. Verse 13, let's read verse, uh, follow along as I read verse 13. Then Tots and I, after he read the letter, um, he was governor of the region of West Euphrates. Shethar Bozani and their colleagues, what did they do? They diligently carried out what he decreed. They diligently carried out what King Darius had. They they did it diligently. It just so happens that they did that they did it diligently. No. This is the Sabbath. They diligently carried out what King Darius. Darius had decreed. Verse 14, if you want to circle the number 14 or underline this whole verse, this sums up everything. And it's going to be on the screen here too. Verse 14, so the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. This is it. This is the word of God and the sovereignty of God coming to fruition, coming together, coming to culmination. Look at this. Under the what of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah? Under the prophesying. What is prophesying? The word of God. You read those prophets. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The word of the Lord came to the word of God came to these prophets and they prophesied and it was the word of God that started something that had previously been stopped. The sovereignty of God. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and they finished the building according to the decrees of all these kings. Well, which was it? was it, Was it God's command and that's why they finished the building? Or was, it, or was it, you know, the decrees of these kings and that's why they finished the building? Yes. Well, was it was it Cyrus's idea? Yes. But was it God's idea? Yes. Well, was it, what, did it, did it just happen to be that these kings just so happened to do this or was it actually God? It's not an either or, it's a both and. This is the beauty of the sovereignty of God, that he can work in and through random kings from a, from a pagan nation to bring about his glory and to bring about his plan. Does the sovereignty of God have to be one or the other? No, it's both and. It's the command of God and it's the decrees of these kings. Ezra 1 picks up on this. It was the spirit of the Lord that roused the spirit of King Cyrus. I bet you Cyrus didn't think that. I bet you the Israelites didn't think that. When Cyrus said, hey, go back home, I don't think anybody, I don't think Cyrus himself was thinking, huh, the Lord is, Yahweh Lord is is rousing up my spirit right now. I'm going to do that, you know? It's looking back retrospectively that they realize God's hand was in this all along. It's difficult to see the sovereignty of God in the moment. Ten years of nothing after you had been promised by God that something was going to happen. Ten years of running into a brick wall over and over and over again. Then God starts to move. God starts to work. God starts to act. You look back on where you just came from and you're like, the Lord was in it all the time. The Lord was in it all along. This verse is the verse that sums up five, chapters 5 and 6, but also probably the whole, whole book of Ezra. That it's the word of God that brings something out of nothing. And it's the sovereignty of God that controls and powerfully moves in such a way that it is effective. Now, this is how the word of God came to them, right? Uh, it came to the Israelites back in... I guess the temple was finished, by the way, for all you history buffs, the temple was finished in 515 B.C. This is right before the 400 years of silence before Jesus gets on the scene. So there's a, there's a few more decades before the silence, and then there's silence, and then Jesus gets back on the scene. So, but, but the word came to these people differently. It came through, through uh, prophets, right? The word of the Lord came through this person, this prophet. And God spoke at many times and in many ways through many prophets. He spoke through um, like face-to-face with Moses, he spoke through commandments, he spoke through um, different, different prophets. But that's not how God's word speaks to us today. Right? I'm thinking of Hebrews 1. Long ago, during this time, God spoke to our fathers, who are the founders of the faith, at various times and in different ways, through the prophets, namely. But now, in these last days... He has spoken to us, he has spoken the word to us, how? In his son. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word of God came and and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, lived among us, and now the word of God, that's it. That's the final word of God. Jesus is the final word of God. And so then then the question is, is the the word of God then brought light out of darkness, brought order out of chaos, brought life from death. It convicted. It encouraged. It did all of these things. Well, what does the word of God, i.e. Jesus, do now? Those exact same things. He brings light out of darkness. He brings order out of chaos. He brings life out of death. He convicts. He encourages. He trains. He guides. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The same word of God then, all the way, in, all the way back to Genesis, that brings everything out of nothing is the same word of God, Jesus, that does that in our lives, in our hearts. There's darkness in our hearts. He brings light. There's chaos in our hearts. He brings order. There's death in our hearts. He brings life. This is the word of God that has the power to transform. This is the word of God that when we listen and we act, when we hear and we believe, we have life and life abundant. Not only that, the word of God prophesied to these people to say, hey, rebuild a temple. What is the word of God now in Jesus? Jesus is the temple, which means that when he is in you, guess what? We are the temple. Paul says this, you are the temple of the living God. When Christ is in you, you are the hope of glory. A temple and a building isn't the hope of glory. You are the hope of glory. When Christ is in you and if Christ is in you. That's the word of God today. So the question is, is the word of God that active in your life? In in your hearts, in your minds, in your spiritual lives, is the word of God that active? Is the word of God something that continually changes you, guides you, leads you, brings light into dark situations, brings order out of chaos, brings life out of death? And then the second question is, do you trust the sovereignty of God? Sovereignty is very difficult because, like I said, it is something that you only know after the fact. Joseph, when he was in the pit and when he was in slavery, he couldn't say what man intended for evil, God turned to good. When these people had been stopped for 10 years from their building, I doubt they could say, yeah, but God's sovereign and he's, he's going to. Maybe they did. And maybe you and I do that too. But it's one thing to say it, and it's a whole other thing to actually trust it. Because in those moments of darkness, in those moments of the valley, in those moments of absolute chaos in your mind or your heart, are we able to confidently say, yet not I, but through Christ in me? Are we able to confidently say, I know that all things, this broken relationship, this sin addiction, this struggle, All things work together for the good of those who love him. Is the word of God calling you out in your sin? Is the word of God encouraging you in your strength? Is the word of God transforming your heart? Is the word of God reminding you that you are a temple of the living God? And is the sovereignty of God something that you can look at? And yes, you can look at retrospectively, looking back, saying, I've seen God's past faithfulness then in my life. I've seen God's past faithfulness then in the faith that I am inheriting. And so I hang on to that knowing that God will be faithful now and he will be faithful then. Because the word of God and the sovereignty of God, i.e. Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to spend some time thinking about these questions. And it's going to be silent and it might be a little awkward, but that's okay. But I want us to sit, before we come up for communion... I want us to sit and maybe read the passage, maybe turn to Romans 8, maybe pray, but I want to ask the Spirit of God right now to come and, and remind us of this truth. To come in and convict us where we need convicted, to encourage us where we need encouraged, to love us where we need love, to remind us what we, we, we often forget. And then I also want us to think about a time when God has been faithful in your life. Think about a story in the scripture, think about a story in your life when God has been faithful in your life and you've seen the sovereignty of God and ask him to give you the faith to trust that he is still sovereign today. And then in a minute, I'm gonna come up and pray and then we'll stand and get the elements for communion. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that your word is what activates us your word is what brings us life your word is what brings light into our darkness and father your word is Jesus and so Jesus we thank you thank you that we can rely on your strength and not our own thank you Jesus that you uh, did not despise the cross Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you rose from the dead. Thank you, Lord, that you were able to defeat the enemies that we so struggle against. Thank you, Lord, that you were able to defeat the enemies that we don't wrestle against. Uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Lord, but we wrestle against uh, principalities, darkness, forces of evil. You wrestled against them, and you were victorious. So, Father, enter our lives, Spirit, Spirit. Bring us new life. Father, encourage us from your word, from Ezra 5 and 6, that your word is life and your sovereignty is over all things. God, you were sovereign back then, 2,500 years ago. Be sovereign today. We know you will. Take hold of our lives. Allow us to release our firm grips on our own lives. and, And please, Lord, take hold of our lives. Lord, lead us, guide us, we pray. Remind us of your faithfulness. And thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change. You are a stronghold, our refuge in whom we take refuge. We pray all these things in your Son's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at inkanygospel.com. Or you can find us on social media at Inkeny Gospel.